I'm reading the longer portion of Isaiah chapter 8. Uh, nine, chapter 9 is what we're familiar with. But, but here's the, chapter, chapter 8 is very dark and bleak, okay? And chapter 9 is very bright and light. And um, what, what you have in the first part of our reading today is Isaiah saying, why, why do you seek life among the dead? And so he, he speaks as he writes about the necromancers who chirp. And a necromancer was someone who tried to predict the future from a dead body. Whoa. I mean, okay. And uh, I say, well, boy, how do we relate this today? Fortune tellers, tar- tarot card readers, palm readers, crystal ball gazers, astrologers, horoscopes. It's very similar. Notice the contrast, though. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, literally they have no light in them. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward and they will not, not in worship, but in anger. And they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness and gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time... He's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And don't stop there. Of the increase of his government, uh, that we would know as his kingdom, and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And you say, how on earth is that going to happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now you'll need your pew Bibles, these beautiful haven blue ESV pew Bibles. Turn to page 1100. 
in the book of Acts in the New Testament, page 1100, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts chapter 17, page 1100. My guess is a person with partial Greek background. I love always reading about how the gospel goes to the Greeks, and especially this section. And this is page 1100. Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. And Amphipolis and Apollonia are the the northern parts. As you were coming out of Turkey and you move over uh, to the northern part of Greece, that's where this was, and Thessalonica was also in northern Greece. Now when they, that is Paul and Silas, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, that is Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against literally the dogmas of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The grass does wither, and the flowers do fade away, but the word of our God stands forever, to which you respond by saying, Hallelujah, and thanks be to God. I want you to indulge me this morning. I'm not going to be preaching on a, on a, uh, a traditional Christmas text, although, um, believe me, you'll see the bearing that it has. I'm fascinated with the subject of how Christ's coming into the world has changed the world. And I'm so glad we have so many of our younger folks here. This is one of the things that I wish that I had learned uh, very early on in my Christian life. I I learned, for which I was very thankful, I learned that the Lord forgives me of my sins a little bit later in my Christian walk, that he gives me a perfect righteousness, and it was about, we were about the work of telling people about Jesus that they might be saved. But there was very little done talking about how Christ by the Holy Spirit, really changed the whole world. And especially in our day, and young folks, you, you run into this all the time, people say, what's, so what's the relevance of this story about Jesus, even if, it is, even if it is true? So what's the relevance for today? And I'm hoping that this message will, uh, will help you answer that question. It's not a traditional text. But, it, it, but it's based on Matthew's account of the birth of Christ uh, with the emphasis on you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And there was an influence such that wise men from the east, probably from Persia, even came to this Christ. We're assuming that. Um, Mark, interestingly, doesn't have an account of the birth of Christ. Luke does. 
And Luke particularly emphasizes that Christ is the king. He, he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And for John's beginning, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, it's the fact that Jesus is the God-man. He is God and man, two distinct natures and one person forever. And that's stuff for all kinds of preaching. What I'm speaking about, though, assumes all of that. And it asks, quite frankly, what, what's the relevance of Christ's coming for the world? And for that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to page 1100. Because the text that fascinates me, I, I think it captures more than anything else what Christ means to the world is when the people shout, these men who turn the world upside down are with us now. Jesus literally turns the world upside down. And what we're going to do, I want to take a few minutes and just look with you at Acts chapter 17 and verse 1 and following, especially because it's really the, well, it's the second account. Philippi is the first. But, but it's the account of how the Apostle Paul goes and begins dealing in a pagan world, in the, in the, uh, in, in the Greek world. So we're going to look at Acts 17, 1 through 9. And then second, um, how Christ changes your world within and turns your world within upside down. And then, and I'm going to use a, one of my very favorite books to, uh, to help me with this along with the Bible, uh, how, how, Christ, how Christ coming changes the whole world. And then in the conclusion, I want to reread the text. I think we should read it a little bit differently. But let, let's start looking at the text itself. You're on page 1100 in your Bibles. It's Acts chapter 17. And the Apostle Paul, as you know, goes to this area of uh, the northern part of Greece. And uh, they come to Thessalonica, and there's a synagogue. So Paul knows there's a synagogue there. Uh, the people have the Old Testament, and they learn from it, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So Paul, on three Sabbath days, that was the, uh, that was the Old Testament day of worship, the Saturday, he, 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 as was his custom, as it was with Christ, he, he literally he dialogues with them from the Scriptures. Now, he did preach. That comes up later. But, but at this point, he's talking with them about what the Old Testament says about Jesus. And that's a great way to minister to people uh, when they want to know what the Bible says. You just open up the Scriptures and tell them, above all, about Jesus. And he explains, and he proves, he demonstrates that, now, now, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. What does he mean by that? For a Jew to be crucified was a tremendous stumbling block. Only the, only the refuse among criminals was to be crucified. But for the Messiah, Christ, to suffer, and to suffer as a criminal. And so Paul explains why that was necessary to them. And the reason is simply and profoundly, if he didn't bear hell, if he didn't bear hell for us, we bear hell for ourselves. And, and so Paul would deal with this, and in suffering, remember all the curses uh, that the Old Testament speaks about have, have, are distilled like a laser in Christ on the cross. It must have been fascinating as he spoke of the suffering of Christ, but he didn't stop there. And to rise from the dead, he speaks of Easter Sunday, so to speak, and the fact that this Jesus' death was the death of death. 
and his resurrection confirmed that his sacrifice had been accepted. And he says, this Jesus, remember he's called Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. This Jesus whom I proclaim, now he uses the word preach, is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And, and the Holy Spirit was at work. Some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas. They wanted to be Christ followers or Jesus followers as the, the term was used. And, and many of the devout Greeks, these were God-fearing Greeks. This is quite fascinating. They were Greeks who were quite interested in the temple. They were interested in Judaism, and they feared God. And while the Jews didn't like Gentiles, they kind of tolerated these God-fearing Greeks. And, and they, they are those who come to Christ. And, and not a few of the leading women. And as you're going to learn later, this is remarkably countercultural. Because women were looked down upon in the first century. And it was the Christian faith that elevated women. And you see it here. The Holy Spirit says, don't leave out the women. Fascinating. But the Jews, who were antagonistic to, to Paul, became come jealous. Why? <laughs> because nothing was happening in their synagogue, but now life is coming to these people. They're jealous. And they take some wicked men of the rabble which is another way of saying they took some really bad characters from there in Thessalonica, and they form a mob, they set the city in an uproar. Now notice how the pot's going to call the kettle black here, because they set the city in an uproar, and they attack the house of Jason, and they're going to say these are the people that are turning the world upside down. They want to bring Paul and Silas out. They probably would have killed them if they could. They were somehow being protected. The Lord was protecting them. They couldn't find Paul and Silas, so they dragged Jason. And some notice the language of the brothers, because Christians were brothers and sisters, and they, because they were they were adopted in Christ, and they lived as a family. So they bring Jason and some of the cities, uh, the brothers before the city authorities, and they're shouting. This, this is very intense language. They shout, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, which means get ready. They're going to turn our area upside down as well. And again, pot calling the kettle black. These are the ones who've upset everything. Jason has received them. Make sure you get him linked in with Paul and Silas. And they are all acting against literally the dogmas, the doctrines, the teaching of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus. I love the statement because this bears so much on today. Because Jesus is Lord, Caesar wasn't. And because Jesus is Lord, the state is not. All right? So, so this is very powerful. And here's, this, see, this is what is, again, contradictory and ironic. The Jews didn't like Caesar. The Jews didn't like Rome. The Jews would have overthrown Rome if they could. And they are accusing Paul and Silas and Jason and the brothers uh, that they are, those who, they are those who are opposing Caesar and the people. And, and Caesar did not want any opposition. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. They wanted peace. And so what they did is they took some money. <laughs> it's about money in almost every age. They take some money as bail, basically, from Jason and the rest. And they let them go. Now, in First Thessalonians, Paul says they had to leave 
because Satan himself hindered us. The, the devil was very, very much at work here in Thessalonica, uh, but that didn't really hinder the Lord, as you'll find out, okay? Now, just a, a note about this. This is true, especially in our day, and it, it is more or less in every age in the Christian church. You maintain that God made man male and female. You maintain that God made marriage to be between one man and one woman. In fact, you simply talk about God. And you're a disturber of the peace. That's what we've been learning in Strange New World. So this is not unusual. Okay, They're, they're accused of turning the world upside down. So, so this is the situation. And, and the tr- there's truth in that. Because there was tremendous change that had come in just a period of three weeks in Thessalonica. And that's what I want us to look to in the second place. And here you're going to need to turn in your Bibles to page 1172 to the beginning of the book of First Thessalonians. And here is Bible brilliance for you for the morning. First Thessalonians is the first letter that was written to this church that was developing in Thessalonica, okay? And it was a, it's really a, a model, a text, chapter 1, what God did in Thessalonica. He did turn things upside down. This, this work that God did in Thessalonica, it really became a model to the whole church. And It's a, it's a fascinating text about the power of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 5, our gospel didn't come to you only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction or full persuasion. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And that's connected. You saw what God had done in us, turning us upside down. And that, that added to and contributed to and was attached to the power of the Holy Spirit by which you were saved. And Paul is thrilled because he said, what happened among you? Now, that's been told in all of Macedonia and Achaia uh, throughout that portion of the Gentile world. For not only has the word of the Lord, verse 8, sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For th- what, a, what a testimony. You hear what happened in Thessalonica where the world was turned upside down. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Here it is. Here's turning the world upside down. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus. Remember, call his name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's use this text to answer the question, how is a world within turned upside down? I'm going to ask you if your world within has been turned upside down. If the Lord has really, really saved you, it's, it's an upside-down experience, okay? And, and, and you get the list, basically, of what that upside-downness is in this text. Notice, number one, from idols to the living and true God, your world is turned upside down. Uh, to the Romans, when Paul wrote, he chapter 1, 
Wow, he begins by saying the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. For what may be known of God is eternal power and Godhead is made known there without excuse. But they worship and serve the creature more than the creator. And therefore, all forms of wickedness comes. Why the wickedness of our culture? Not first because of sexual mores or because of violence in stores or even because of the covetousness of the season. It's because we have an idolatrous culture. We have many other gods before us and we don't worship him according to his word. First table of the law. But, but now the world is turned upside down. They turn to God from these idols. It's, it's a complete shift. Have you turn to God from your idols. Well, that's number one, for how the, how the world within is turned upside down. But notice second, <clears throat> it's from slavery to freedom. Notice to worship and serve the creature more than the creator. Uh, they turn to God from idols to become a servant of the living and the true God. And literally, they're brought from slavery to superstition and death. They're serving the living and the true God from superstition and death. They're brought from slavery to freedom. And don't miss this, folks. By nature, you and I are slaves. Paul says in Galatians 4 and verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were Enslaved, you are led around by the nose to those that by nature are not gods. I'll give you an example and a lot of seasonal illustrations. You know as well as I do, Christmas is not about Christmas in America. It's about consumerism. It's about spending and spending and spending and spending and spending. Now there's an example of being enslaved. It's not wrong to spend. But when people live for that, you're being led around by the nose as a slave. Not just one of our idols. But notice the world is turned upside down because Paul would go on in Galatians and he would say, it was for freedom that Christ set you free and no longer be enslaved in a yoke of bondage. Stand fast in that freedom. In this sense, Wow, it's the freedom of life, folks. The Christian life is life. And, and everlasting life, not just existence, but, but lachayim, to the fullness of life. And truth, over against all the empty superstitions of a culture. The world turned upside down when you're turned from slavery to superstition and death to the freedom, uh, glorious freedom of the children of God. And then notice it's also... They, they are turned from self to Christ and to wait for his son from heaven. To wait for, in this sense, that's what I live for. I have, I have a desire for Christ each day. It would be the equivalent, and, and you know it, well, he describes it a little bit more in verse 3, remembering before your God, our God and Father, here it is, to wait for Christ. Your work of faith and your labor of love 
and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul would make it real simple. He'd say, for me to live is Christ. By nature, we, we live for ourselves. We are our own great idols. Does the Lord turn your world upside down? So you say, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. And then it goes on. Not just from self to Christ, the Son, but notice the change is from earth to heaven. World turned upside down. And if you just go to the earlier, right before the book of 1 Thessalonians, Colossians chapter 3, this is, this is, this is really the heart of what it is to be a Christian. If then you have been raised with Christ, Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, and by this thing we call mystical union, I the same with him. Keep seeking, seek, keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, keep doing it, not on the things that are on earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's to wait for his Son from heaven. Has your world been turned upside down? You say, Lord, faith in Christ means what? Everything that is his is mine. His life, my life, his righteousness, my righteousness, his his death, my death. His resurrection, my resurrection. His ascension, mine. That's really where I live. My whole world is turned upside down. Earth doesn't have the power over me that it had by nature. And then, if that's not enough, Paul says again in First Thessalonians, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. And here's, here's fullness of life. Remember, pagans... Pagans, for pagans, deaths, death really was hopelessness. They had no, no guarantee at all of what happened after death. But with Christ and his resurrection, the Christian could say, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? Because the Lord Jesus Christ who delivers us from the wrath to come, conquered death. And so the Apostle Paul said, our world has changed upside down. We turn from death to life when we can say death is swallowed up in victory. That's a real upside-down world. You see that at a funeral for those outside of Christ. What hopelessness. But for a Christian, you can say what John Wesley said of the Methodists. They say what they will of the Methodists. But we die well. They are in glory. They didn't die. They sleep in Christ. So that, that's a world turned upside down. And last but not least, it's from wrath to grace. From Jesus, who is called Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. He brings us from wrath to grace and delivers us from the wrath. Not, not only to come, but the writer of Colossians says it's the wrath that comes. There's a wrath that God pours out even in the world in his judgments. And whether it be those temporal things or whether it be the wrath is probably in view here of Christ's coming at the last day. 
your world is turned upside down because there's no condemnation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I, I don't know, I don't know of, any, of any better way to describe, right from <clears throat> Paul's description of the Thessalonians, of what their inner lives had been turned into. And let me ask you, has your inner world been turned upside down by the gospel? If you're trying to tack on a few good things to your life, your world hasn't been turned upside down. Grace will turn you from idols to God, from slavery to freedom. Grace will turn you from obsession with yourself to obsession with Christ. Grace will turn you from death to life and from wrath to grace and freedom. Has it done that? It's a whole new upside-down world within is yours. And how does that come about? Well, remember that connected with uh, the world turning upside down, they, they say they don't follow the dogmas, the doctrines of Caesar. They say there's another king, Jesus. And these two are connected because it is as king and savior, Jesus turns your world upside down. And let me ask you, Who's on the throne of your heart? Is it you or is it Christ? And if it's you always wanting to do what you want to do, then you need to be born again. You need to have your whole world turned upside down by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Just a note, because I am really quite grieved over the bankruptcy again in our a third of non-denominational churches. They don't they're not going to worship on Sunday because it's Christmas. That's because of the bankruptcy of so much evangelical dogma and preaching. Where there's not enough strength in the preaching in so many churches to scare a fly from off the wall. Let me ask you, how many people do you see whose lives are really turned upside down by most churches today? Okay? That's why we need to pray lest we point the finger at others. You in the haven. Is your life turned upside down? All right, now, that's that's the um, world within. But what about the world around you? How is that turned upside down? Jesus in Matthew 13 has a couple of parables about the kingdom. And one of them, he says, the kingdom is like like leaven, it's like yeast. And you know, if you make bread, you put yeast inside the dough, and the dough expands. And, and while, while the yeast doesn't become dough, it does affect all of the dough, and it rises, and it makes it much more pleasant. And, oh, it smells so good when you bake it, okay? And so the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, and that's what it does to the world, folks. But what does it do to the world? Now, one of the most... <clears throat> I'm trying to not quote too much, but but uh, some things are, you just can't miss. There's a fellow named Tom Holland, very interesting figure, very, very gifted writer. And <clears throat> Tom Holland was brought up in a Christian home where he did what so many young people did. He, you know, he learned to say his prayers, he went to Sunday school, threw it all over as a teenager. But he couldn't get away from what he had been taught about the Christian faith. 
And I don't even know today if Tom Holland personally is a believer in Christ, but he wrote a book called Dominion, and, and uh, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Well, you could have entitled it How the Christian Revolution Turned the World Upside Down. But he explains why he wrote the book. The ambition of Dominion is to trace the course of what one Christian writing in the 3rd century A.D., Anno Domine, termed the flood tide of Christ. How the belief that the son of the one God of the Jews had been tortured to death on a cross came to be so enduringly and widely held that today most of us in the West are dulled to just how scandalous that message originally was. And notice that was a message Paul preached in Thessalonica. This book explores what it was that made Christianity so subversive and disruptive, how completely it came to saturate the mindset of Latin Christendom, and why in a West, that's our area, that is often doubtful of religion's claims, so many of its instincts remain thoroughly Christian. It is, to coin a phrase, the greatest story ever told. Now, what he's saying is this, and, and, he, and especially in his last two chapters where he deals with the modern age, is brilliant. A culture can, in every conceivable way seek to rebel against the Christian faith but ultimately they cannot avoid it and he chronicles how exactly from the development of the Christian faith to the present day we are so formed that no matter what flood tides of infidelity come the Christian faith is still there all right, so it's what the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish. Now, let me, <clears throat> just to, and I, I've written up my own, nah, you know, I'm just going to use somebody that I depend on more than myself. Alvin J. Schmidt used to be a, a teacher of sociology at the University of Illinois. One a good reading book, came out years ago, but still so valuable. How Christianity changed the world, how it turned the world upside down. And I thought, rather than just give you my, my contents, I'm just going to read the chapter in here, it'll whet your appetite. How did Christianity turn the world, the world around us, upside down? It begins, chapter 1, people transformed by Jesus Christ, as we did here. Chapter 2, the sanctification of human life. Pagans killed their infants. Christians said, no. Each human being, male or female, regardless of what the person's life might be like, made in the image of God. And that transformed a way of thinking. Christianity <clears throat> elevates sexual morality. One of the things that pains me the most after over 40 years in the ministry is to see over the decades how so many women are treated like dirt in our culture. That's a reversion to paganism, where women were treated not even as citizens. 
of the Christian faith, beginning with Christ's own coming, elevated, elevated womanhood and sexual morality, esteeming it in the bonds of marriage. <clears throat> Women received freedom and dignity, and they did. Uh, the fact that Jesus was with the women, that women were witnesses of the resurrection, the fact that the Holy Spirit says, don't leave out the fact there weren't a few women that came to Christ. And so that elevation of, of the one that is of a man, um, but is not a, a doormat, okay, done within the Christian faith. Charity and compassion, one of my favorite themes in Christian history, what we call philanthropy, the love of man. Paganism, paganism didn't, didn't know anything of that. You know, it was all about you and, and what you got and your gain and pagan. But Christians said everything we have comes from God. How can we best use it? Uh, not only for the Lord's service, but to benefit those around us. And that's a, that's a fascinating study in itself, charity and compassion, philanthropy. Hospitals and health care, their Christian roots. Paganism had a simple view. We have it in our own culture. They're old, then just let them die. Not Christians. And it's interesting that even <clears throat> in the early church, the elders were to be called when someone was very sick. And they were to pray over him, anointing, anointing the person with oil. It was actually a medical treatment. And so early on, medicine, uh, physical care, so to speak, and spiritual care were wed together. And that developed in the Christian church into what we know of as hospitals and health care and hospice care. Fascinating study, so different than paganism. Christianity's imprint on education. If you have words, you have words in the Bible... Well, and expected to know that word, then you better teach people. And right from the very beginning, there was that what was called the catechesis. There was the, the, the question and answer education of people, and soon the common schools. And fascinating study of how schools proliferated in the Christian world. Labor and economic freedom dignified, especially in the concept of vocation and calling. Whatever your calling is as a secretary, as a carpenter, as an engineer, as a teacher, as a pastor, as a lawyer, a doctor, whatever it would be, it's all holy in God's hands, and you're meant to serve others with it. There's even something called the Protestant work ethic, uh, where you work hard and you're disciplined so that, so that not only you can earn for yourself to pay your bills, but to benefit others. Fascinating study. Science, it's Christian connections. The greatest of the scientists of the past centuries in most cases were Christians. Francis Bacon, who was the father of the experimental method, was a Jesuit priest. And they would say, apart from God who ordered all things and has a, a universe that, that, is, that is uniform and, and, and it is governed by laws, apart from that you can't have science. And so it proliferated. Liberty and justice for all something called the Magna Carta in the 13th century, which is based on the Bible that lays out our rights, the rights of citizens in any, in any responsible society. Slavery abolished a Christian achievement, and it was. Slavery actually had been abolished in the Christian church in the first few centuries, and then later, later it, was, it came back, but that's another story. How do you know it's a Christian achievement? There's a whole book in the Bible about it. 
It's called Philemon. Philemon has a servant, Onesimus. And Onesimus escapes. And in God's providence, he gets put in jail with Paul. And guess what Paul does? He does what he Thessalonia. He tells him about Jesus. And Onesimus' life is turned upside down as his master's life. Philemon's life had been turned upside down. And it's a fascinating book. Uh, because Paul writes very graciously and gentlemanly. And he says, uh, when you receive him back, and he says, I'm going to send him back. He's a slave. But remember, he's your brother. And you can make a case that Onesimus became one of the first bishops in the Christian church. See, fascinating how that issue is addressed in the scriptures. Christianity's stamp on art and architecture, especially in the Reformation, uh, for art prior to that in the Middle Ages was very two-dimensional kind of art, and it only had to be people with halos on their heads, which they never really had anyway. But, but the Reformation in particular emphasized the realism, the world of the field, the world of the laborer, the world of the sky. God had made it. And art was to represent it and represent it beautifully. The sound of music, its Christian resonance, and so many in here, Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach was a committed Christian whose music, whether you're a Christian or not, is still regarded as a magnificent standard of order. But they knew the God who rejoices over us with singing. And so music was hallowed in the Christian tradition. Hallmarks of literature, their Christian imprint. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe, a committed Christian who actually believed that God had dictated that book, which he didn't, but it sure had a powerful impact. Uh, Uncle Tom, was, Uncle Tom was, was a slave who was treated miserably. And, and as you read through the book, he actually is a Christ figure in that book. But it drew attention to slavery, again, a Christian influence, this, and, and with many in, in literature. And I love his little section, additional influence. Holidays, like Sunday, for example, or Christmas. Words, symbols, uh, B.C. And, and A.D., before Christ, and Anno Domine, year of our Lord, and expressions. How many times have I heard just this past week, since it's Christmas week, about good Samaritans? So you see how the Christian faith has, like yeast, influenced a whole world. And is still doing it. Of the increase of his government and of shalom, there will be no end to order it and to establish it from this time forth and forevermore. And you're discouraged, right? The zeal of the Lord of hosts has done this, and it will do this. So put the two together. Look at the influence that Alvin Schmidt says Christianity had around the world, and it, it's fascinating. And then Tom Holland's book, where he says, and again, I'm not even sure he's a committed Christian, you can't get away from the fact that everything about the modern Western world has been formed by Christianity, and we'll rebel against it. We'll never get away from it. Wow. Okay. So that's, now, now let me ask you, how's your Christianity affecting the world around you? How is your Christianity turning your neighborhood upside down? I'm asking this to myself. 
How's your Christianity turning your family upside down? How's your Christianity turning your relatives upside down? And we work on these things. It's like yeast. But folks, that's what Christ, who is alive and at work, really, really does. Now let me, let me end this way. Let's, let's look at this text again. These are they who have turned the world upside down. The gospel turns the world right side up. Okay? There's where they were wrong. All those things make you right side up. And the way that comes as you deal with people is you say, you know, you've got to surrender to God and make that one that you walk on with your feet to be the very pinnacle of your adoration, upside down. And here's the gospel. Because you're dying in your own sins, the Lord saves you and turns you to be a Christ follower upside down. Really, really, it's right side up. And that's the way I think really we ought to read the text. Not from the angry mob, but I think maybe what Paul and Silas might have said, we haven't turned the world upside down, but right side up. And here's a famous church historian who puts all these things together. I love the way this man writes, and, and he captures this whole thing. In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and in him also is realized the ideal of human virtue and piety. Christ is the eternal truth and the divine life itself, personally joined with our nature. He is our Lord and our God, and yet at the same time flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone. In him is solved the problem of religion, the reconciliation and fellowship of man with God, And we must expect no clearer revelation of God nor any higher religious attainment of man than is already guaranteed and actualized in Christ's person and work. But as Jesus Christ thus closes all previous history, late in time he comes, right? At the very end of the old age, as Jesus Christ thus closes all previous history, so, on the other hand, he begins an endless future. He is the author of a new creation. He is the last Adam. He is the father of regenerate humanity, the head of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He is the pure fountain of that stream of light and life, which has since flowed unbroken through nations and ages, and will continue to flow till the earth shall be full of his praise, and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The universal diffusion and absolute dominion of the Spirit and life of Christ will also be the completion of the human race, the end of history, and the beginning of of a glorious eternity. And let me add this. And the beginning of a perfectly right-side-up world. May the Lord begin that right-side-upness right in each of us and in the haven. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you for how we are reminded that of the increase of your government and of shalom,
there will be no end. You will order it. You will establish it. You've done it and you will continue to do it. And it will be your zeal that will do it. Oh God, make us right side up people. And make us to be right side up people who with everything we are involved with, with every person we're involved with, seek to see that made right side up, looking to Christ. We long for the day, our God, when every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. But may we begin to see that work in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our nation, and more and more in the world, to the glory of the transforming Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.